Um, my name is Sarah New. I've been coming to this church for about four years. Um, I lead a small group in Brooklyn Heights, and any of your any pronouns are okay with me. So, as a heads up today, I am going to be giving a giving message, which means at the end of the sermon, I will ask you to give money or something like that. Um, labor time also would be nice, but I think uh, finances are actually sort of one of the main focuses um, in terms of getting our budget back up to balance. Um, and when I heard that I was supposed to give a giving message, I was like, okay, you know, I can, I can do that. I'll just talk about why I give to Forefront and why um, the role Forefront has played in kind of my story, and hopefully you'll learn something theologically important about God and faith in the meantime. So we're at the end of this series in which we talk about Forefront's vision and values. So I think last week we talked about one of our core values is anti-racism, and this week it's generosity. And so the definition of generosity, it's posted on the website, um, is we partner with God's work in our world by selflessly serving with our time, energy, and extravagant giving of our resources in response to God's grace. So I want to talk about this phrase, selflessly serving. Because it has very, for me at least, very particular connotations. Um, as those of you who heard me preach or know me before, I, um, my parents are pastors, missionaries, church planters, and in the Southeast Asian network of churches that we were a part of, particularly under my dad's leadership, church was really all-consuming. It was all about you know evangelism, church planting, discipleship, what have you. A regular schedule will look something like this. Um, Monday nights, you would have cell group or Bible studies. Tuesday nights, you have one-on-one meetings with your mentor, which we call it shepherds, which is a little weird. Um, and then Fridays, you would have uh, prayer and worship all the way until 10, 11 p.m. Once a quarter, it would be th until 3 or 4 a.m. Uh, Saturdays, you wake up around 8 a.m. and you go jogging this hill, and then you uh, pray, and then you have breakfast. And then Sundays, you would spend all day at church all the way up till 11 p.m. for meetings. Um, so when we moved to America, my parents were like, what do we do with our free time? <laughs> you know, it was like, I think my mom said she felt guilty for spending vacations on the family and not on church events or church retreats. Um, and so you can see, I kind of grew up in a context in which church was all about selfless service for the collective. And I think over time, I began to sort of imbibe the idea that following God means choosing the hard path the not easy path, the path of self-denial, the path of sacrifice. And so if God's will looked too much like yours, it's probably not God. It's probably something you're making up in your head because you know, you're probably just following yourself and your self-desires are not to be trusted. They're maybe bad and God's self is good. And obviously the whole bit about creating God's image is like kind of ignored. Um, but you know, I, I sit through testimony after testimony of people talking about how I had this job that was really comfortable, that I was really passionate about, but I felt called, got called by God to give it up and go to this other church, uh, other city to start a church there. Or people who would be like, you know, I'm just sitting in this bus and I really wanted to just enjoy my book and not be awkward, but I felt God called me to share my faith with this person and impose my faith upon them. Um, and, you know, it was just, and I think over time, we began to develop this kind of subconscious criteria that if you're unsure about what to do, what God's will was, if you wanted it too much, it's probably not God. If you didn't want it, that's how you knew it was God. Because <laughs> Christianity was about giving up yourself. So you can see why the phrase selfless service is a little bit loaded for me. And to fully explain why, I have to rewind um, just four years this time to 2015, which is about when it started coming to forefront. So I think people who know me kind of see me today as a sort of 
queer crusader with a homosexual agenda or something like that. Um, and you know, that's not entirely untrue, but for, for, most, for most of my teenage to adult life, so like 15 to 25, I actually held pretty conservative views on most things, uh, but, but particularly on sexuality. Um, I believed God designed marriage for a man and a woman, and so um, I was exposed to other ways of interpreting that stuff, but I think the way I see it is, given the tools I had inherited on how to interpret the Bible, the only logical conclusion from my point of view that I could have with integrity was to say, you know, being gay was a sin. And I even wrote um, this 25-page paper during a Christian fellowship I uh, attended after college, in which I argued that the pairing of a man and a woman is the best reflection of God's vision for marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. So, I know the arguments back and forth. Um, oh, like the back of my hand is what I meant to say. Um, so things started to change when I moved to Brooklyn, uh, staying with my parents to save money and pay loans. And um, a friend of mine said, you know, I'm moving, uh, a friend from college, Caroline, I'm moving to Brooklyn, come with me. I said, okay. And I wanted to find a local church in Brooklyn because I was attending this other church in Manhattan. And I was remembering a friend of mine asked me who was debating with me and was like, Sarah, you're so repressed. Like, eh. and, she, and she was like, why don't you just for six months try to infirm and embrace your sexuality? And just see what data points you collect. And uh, the way she said things kind of worked in my brain. So I was like, sure, uh, I, you know, I'll try anything for six months, basically. And so I was like, let me try find a local LGBT affirming church in Brooklyn. So I went to this church, St. Lydia's, is a mainline Lutheran ELCA church that is really wonderful. Uh, I really like it today. But I think back then it was like too, revol too like radical for me, or too different for me, too foreign for me. Um, there was like no band, people just sang. Um, no PowerPoint, people sang like songs from like a book. Um, there was like hymns, uh, I, I didn't really understand that. I was like, where's the hill song? Um, and uh, people, it was you know mostly white, and the pastor's sermons were really smart and good, but I just felt she was interpreted the Bible a little different than the way I was used to. So when the church was like, oh yeah, we affirm and accept LGBT people, part of me was like, oh, that's great. But then, because everything they did in church was so different than how I did church growing up, I also was mostly, honestly, suspicious. Like, how do I know you take the Bible as seriously in the same ways I do? How do I know you take Jesus as seriously in the same ways as I do? Um, and the way I think about it now is I didn't have the right context or tools to make sense of this kind of message of LGBT affirmation. And secondly, being affirming was one of St. Lydia's core values. It's like a non-negotiable for them. And it seemed to me, through how I warped my psychology, was like too easy. Like how can I take as a given something that I've had tried, been trying to give up? So, and all this kind of propaganda about liberal churches started rising. I was like, what if they're putting politics before the gospel? Like, how, you know, how, maybe they're just interpreting the Bible according to their desires, not God's desires. And I, I do want to just add a caveat that I forgot to do in the last service. Um, St. Lydia does take the Bible seriously and does care about following Jesus. They just don't do it in like evangelical ways the way I was brought up with. So, but underlying all of this um, was this kind of psychology I think I had that I realized in retrospect was that if it's too easy it's probably not God's will because following God means giving up yourself, denying yourself, losing yourself and it's not just my childhood you find it like literally in the Bible like there are many passages, I'm going to read one of them then Jesus told his disciples if anyone wants to become my followers let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me 
For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose their life? You see this also in Mark, Luke, and I believe John is actually a pretty repeated passage. And so to my mind, I thought, you know, you know, if I embraced my sexuality, what would I be giving up? How would my life look like this path that I think I'm supposed to follow? It's, and I'm going to just zoom out a little bit here and say that although obviously the themes of self-denial and Christianity, I probably, if you grew up in church, particularly in an evangelical church, you can relate to, but the cost of self-denial in the church I just want to add, is not evenly and equally distributed. Obviously, queer people are expected to deny their sexualities and gender identities in ways that cis and straight people are not. Um, many Christians, for instance, also expect black Americans to deny their sense of righteous anger in order to extend forgiveness in ways that white Americans are not. Women expect to deny their voices and submit to the leadership of men, to, you know, what have you. Men are asked to deny their emotions in order to be seen as respected and credible um, by other people. So, the call to self-denial, I think, is something that we've all heard in the church world, but it's not equally and evenly distributed. I just wanted to add that note. So how did I start changing my mind? Um, after attending St. Lydia's for a few services, I emailed a former priest, uh, a priest at a former church I was going to at the time, All Angels, Christine Lee, and, emailed Christine, and she emailed a list of recommendations, including for a friend. Uh, it was like Trinity Grace Park Slope, Hope Brooklyn, blah, blah. And Christine, actually, as a side note, has just appointed the senior rector of the first uh, of, uh, of an LGBT-affirming church in Chelsea, making her the first Korean-American woman to, which is Asian-American woman, period, to be the senior uh, leader of a church, an Episcopal church, which is amazing and great. So I walk into Forefront, I think, sometime in the fall or winter 2015, and it feels familiar. Um, you know, most of the churches I've grown up with are multiracial, multicultural, and I was like, okay. I'm getting that vibe here. Um, I sit in chairs, like somewhere here, and I see and hear songs that I grew up singing in my childhood. I see people raising their hands in the ways that I'm used to, people being like moved by the music. And then I see this like white guy get up on stage and he seems to really like the Bible and he keeps quoting verses and he like name drops Jesus like 20 times. Um, <laughs> name dropping Jesus. Um, and I was like, you know, this is, Interesting. This is familiar to me. I, I, this feels like the church I grew up in. And then I find out that the church is in process of, um, you know, discerning where it stood on the question of LGBT inclusion. There are other kind of interesting flags. You know, the pastor would talk about liberation theology and white male privilege. It's like oh, I've never heard those words come out of a pastor's mouth before. So I decide to uh, email the pastor, who I think you all know, Jonathan, and uh, we met up in Dunkin' Donuts in Carroll Gardens with a little backyard and the trees, very nice. Um, and I tell him my conundrum, you know, this is my theology, this is what I believe, but it doesn't fit with my experiences. You know, I'm dating someone and I feel like I'm learning a lot about love, I'm learning a lot about how to be a better person in the way that I feel like Christ will call me to be. So I feel this is dissonance between my head and my heart. I had this like airtight theology. The metaphor I used was, it felt like I had a, a sieve that used like strain things. And it was metal, it was like very cohesive, very tight, but it could not contain the weight of my experiences. And Jonathan said, I feel the same way. And I didn't know it at the time, but he uh, was in the midst of processing the fact that his father had just come out as transgender. And he would tell the church and all of us later on. But back then, you know, we were just talking, and I was like, yeah, you think it would 
the thing with Paul in the Bible is that he seems to lay out this trajectory for in women's inclusion and equality. You know, he starts out here and goes here to here. And but I just don't see Paul doing the same thing for same-sex relationships or what have you. And Jonathan at some point says, I think you're right about that. But I think we can keep going on the trajectory farther than where Paul left off. And I was like, we can go farther than Paul. Like we, we, you're not supposed to add to the Holy Scriptures. Like, what, what is this blasphemy? Um, but, but I was like intrigued. It's like, how can this person who seems to talk about the Bible and Jesus in the same ways I do say also this thing? Um, and it seems like they really do care about, you know, their faith. So I, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to trust this church. I'm going to trust their process and see what comes up. And, you know, to be honest, probably the fact that Jonathan is a white guy probably gave him some spiritual authority in my eyes. Uh, just being frank. And so I asked him to recommend a few books on scriptural interpretation. Um, if it's helpful for y'all, you can write it down, but it's Disarming uh, Scripture by Derek Flood and Things Hidden Scripture as Spirituality by Richard Rohr. You can ask me for those books later on. So I read them, prayed about them, and had some pivotal spiritual experiences. And then I just changed my mind. Uh, <laughs> so, it's kind of like, a, it took a few months, but it was like 15 years building up to that point. Um, and now I do a lot of like queer Christian shenanigans. But uh, so it's a long story, obviously, about how exactly I changed my mind. But uh, the way I think about it is that four friends sort of handheld me from like one step to another step to another step until I was ready to like just keep going on my own. Um, it didn't give me a new way of reading, like, you know, Romans 1 and Romans 3 and 6 and sort of what we call the clobber passages. Instead, it just gave me a new way of reading the Bible, uh, of understanding what authority and revelation meant, what it means for God's spirit to work in all peoples in the lives of the church and throughout history and throughout time. And Jonathan actually has preached a number of times on how our church became LGBT-affirming, so I will listen to that. I'm not going to bother rehashing it. But I would say this church has obviously helped me feel more fully loved by God, but I think even more critically, it helped restore my ability to start to trust myself again. To realize that, hey, I'm creating the image of God, you're creating the image of God, so maybe we are people also worth listening to. Like, we are, the data set of our lives is the data set in which the Holy Spirit is moving as well. So after I changed my mind, I told my friends, I told my partner, hey, I think we can get married now if you want. And... <laughs> And hardest of all, I told my parents uh, around 2016. And it's been three years of, I think, some of the most important and gratifying and life-changing, but also hardest years of my life. And it's hard because for, you know, 26 years of my life leading up to that point, I've mostly been uh, a child that my parents were very proud of, academically, spiritually, and so on. And for the first time, really, in my life, I majorly and severely disappoint them. And from their perspective, I don't just disappoint them, I cause them pain. Like I cause them to stay up late at night without sleep praying for me, cause them to cry and mourn their hopes and dreams for me and worry if I'm going to hell. And cause them to regret coming to this country because look what happened to their daughter and the two other kids who don't go to church. Um, and you know, they're arguing with me and pleading with me to essentially like step back from the precipice of hell. I, I just want to interject here and say that, you know, although I'm talking about the dynamics between my parents and I, obviously they have more conservative views and I have uh, more progressive views, it, it's impossible to understand that story without understanding some of the larger stories. For instance, the story of the role in which Western Christian colonialism played in, under, in enforcing uh, a strict gender and sexual binary in Asia. 
without understanding the role that patriarchy plays in Chinese culture, in which men are told they're not men unless they can control their kids, and women are told they're not mothers if the kids do not grow up to be some people they can be proud of. Um, it's, you cannot understand my story without, I think, understanding the larger context of the ways in which men of color, particularly also Asian American men, experience kind of daily small humiliations. So that's when they, in the workplace, in the public, so when they come home, they sometimes take it out on their families. So I don't have time to get into all those larger stories, but it's not just you know about our interpersonal stories. Often our stories are connected to something larger. But I mean, regardless, even though I understand, it's really hard. Um, it's hard because as immigrants, our families are often the only thing we have here in this kind of strange country. It's when you, so when you lose a child, you lose a parent, you lose a literal part of yourself. And the challenge for me daily, I think, is to figure out how to empathize and acknowledge my parents' pain as real while not being attached while letting go. And I'm not talking about letting go of my parents. Um, you know, and them try to stay in touch via the WhatsApp. Um, but letting go of taking responsibility and feeling guilty for their pain. Because I did not really cause any of them. Their religion did. And in this process, my old self, the self that wanted to make their parents very proud, and that feels overly responsible for taking care of them, has to die. Like I have to deny and crucify and give up that self, the false self, as it were, because it's getting in the way of me living my life. If I try to hang on to that self and save face, some place with parents, what have you, I know I would lose myself, my true self. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose their life? So I think this is the kind of selfless service our church should embody, to give up even crucify our false selves to take on our true selves. To clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Romans 14. To put on the armor of light, as it's written in Colossians 6. To be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives with us, as it's written in Galatians 2. This is the path, in my opinion, of death and resurrection. So if I were to reframe selfless service, going back to the original uh, theme, I would say this. Who is a false self that you have to put away and die to? Who is a true self that you are called to live and be? And although I believe God would have led me to where I'm now, I think regardless of forefront, I think this church has been and still is a vessel of grace for me. I'm grateful for the generosity of Jonathan and many other pastors who have met up with me over coffee to answer questions. I'm grateful for the generosity of this church to pay and invite um, this man named Justin Lee, who founded the Gay Christian Network, to come and speak at this church only a few months after I started attending it. I'm grateful for the leaders of the small group in like North Park Slope who invited me to their homes and graciously and explicitly made me feel welcome. I'm grateful for people like Sue Ann Lee, who I met during a church retreat I went to a few months after attending Forefront, and she listened to me go on this very long ramble about how I was changing my mind theologically, and she affirmed my process. I'm grateful to um, the ushers, worship team, the volunteers who made the Sunday service possible when I walked into the doors here to the people in my small group who listen to all the shit going on with my parents and stuff like that, and like pray, pray with me, pray for me. 
grateful to Angela, our creative director, who sang the one service my mom came, she sang the song that my mom really likes and she started crying. She told me later she felt touched by God, which is very incredible that that happened here in this context. In other words, I'm grateful for this church's generosity. I've grown from the place I was in 2015, 2016, and I'm not obviously the exact same person, but I'm committed to this place because I, I think there are more people like me who are in this process of transition and who thinks that maybe the idea God fully loves them is too good to be true. And they need a place that feels familiar to them, that has the markers of evangelical spiritual authority, like a keyboard and PowerPoint and electric guitar, <laughs> and pastors who cite Bible verses and say the name Jesus 20 times, um, in order to start to be like, hey, maybe the thing that I think is too good to be true or too easy is actually true. And maybe they need a place that will meet them halfway so that people can embark on the real path of death and resurrection. And that's why I want and need, in some ways, this place to continue to flourish and to grow. So I give what I can, and I really hope you will too. I'm going to close in prayer. God, it's been uh, kind of an incredible four years from the moment I walked into the store until the moment where I'm standing here and sharing the story. You know where you're moving in the lives of everyone who is here, what brought them to this church, where they will go afterwards. I pray that you will continue to sow the seeds of life. And the seeds, as you always mention in the Bible, have to die into the earth and be buried in order to be grown. So I pray that for anyone who is feeling the tension between their false selves, between the life they've been living and the life that they know they should live, the life they feel called to, um, their true selves, I pray that you will... Um, unleash the process of death and resurrection and life and that people will find other people to journey with in this process. In your name, amen.